Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Children under the age of five are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine, but not all health experts say the shots are necessary for toddlers. TikTok engineers inside China could have accessed Americans' user data. That's according to leaked recordings from the company's internal meetings. In Maine, an assistant DA received a near $384,000 donation weeks before beating the incumbent prosecutor in the primary election. She says she didn't have any say in the donor getting involved in the race. Texas Governor Greg Abbott making moves to trigger a pushback against the migrant caravan heading through Mexico toward the U.S. We look at what he's doing and how it's turning out. A car drives into a store selling Trump-related merchandise in Massachusetts. Was it intentional or was it an accident? The FDA today authorized COVID-19 vaccines for kids six months to four years old. They're the last age group authorized for the shots in the U.S. Here are the details. The FDA on Friday authorized emergency use of the Moderna and the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccines for children as young as six months old. For children six months to four years old, the Moderna vaccine is comprised of two doses taken one month apart, and the Pfizer vaccine for that age group has three doses. The first two doses are taken three weeks apart, and the last dose is taken at least eight weeks after the second dose. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf said, as we have seen with older age groups, we expect that the vaccines for younger children will provide protection from the most severe outcomes of COVID-19, such as hospitalization and death. Studies and official data have shown that young children are the least impacted by the CCP virus. Data from the CDC shows that 481 children in the U.S. aged 0 to 4 have died with the virus. That is 0.1% of the total COVID deaths. And children in that age group accounted for 3% of total COVID infections in the U.S. Not all health experts approve the idea of giving the COVID vaccine to young children. Dr. David Gortler, a former senior advisor to the FDA commissioner, says there's no need for it because young children don't benefit as much from the vaccine, but are also at a greater risk due to potentially serious vaccine side effects. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Leaked audio from TikTok's internal meetings reportedly show that employees inside China have been able to access Americans' user data. That's according to a report by BuzzFeed News. The data includes things like birthdays and phone numbers. This is casting doubt on what the company has said before about user privacy. TikTok's parent company ByteDance is located in China. BuzzFeed News says that it has reviewed the leaked recordings. They reportedly come from more than 80 meetings and also include screenshots and other documents. During the meetings, nine different TikTok employees reportedly said that engineers in China had access to U.S. user data between at least last September and this January. The tapes appear to suggest that some U.S. employees had to rely on their colleagues in China to access U.S. user data. According to BuzzFeed News, one TikTok employee said that everything is seen in China. And a director also mentioned a master admin in Beijing who has access to everything. Last year, a TikTok executive testified at a Senate hearing that the company has a U.S.-based security team that gets to decide who can access U.S. user data and that it does not share information with the Chinese government. Currently, TikTok's U.S. user data is stored in data centers in the state of Virginia with backups in Singapore. But the company said in a statement today that 100% of U.S. user traffic is now being directed to a data center managed by Oracle in Texas. According to BuzzFeed News, it's part of the company's efforts to stop the flow of data out of the United States and into China. And an assistant DA won a landslide victory in a primary race for top prosecutor in Cumberland County, Maine. But she said she didn't know a progressive political action committee would donate to her campaign. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Just weeks before the primary election, Jacqueline Sartoris received a $384,000 donation from the Maine Public Safety Political Action Committee. Zach Smith, the former federal prosecutor who co-authored a report on dishonest prosecutors, says the Political Action Committee is funded by billionaire George Soros. 
How do we know that George Soros was connected to the more than $380,000 donation that Ms. Sartoris received prior to the primary? The justice and public safety PACs are well-known entities associated with George Soros. And so I have no reason to doubt uh, that the main justice and public safety PAC is also affiliated with George Soros, especially when the treasurer is listed as Whitney Timas, uh, who has spearheaded uh, the National Justice and Public Safety Pact for many years and has been deeply involved in many of Soros' uh, criminal justice uh, so-called reform efforts in the past. Sartoris said in a June 10th statement that her campaign had no say on this PAC's decision to get involved in the race and that she was surprised by the first PAC ad. She said about the ad, I disapprove of the negative tone and do not condone these political ads. Yesterday's PAC mailer frankly made me cringe. Name calling is always harmful. But Smith says Sartoris is planning to implement the same source-backed agenda that several other prosecutors are already doing. That is, implementing policies rather than enforcing the law. That's not something the prosecutor's office traditionally takes part in, making policy decisions in the same way you would see a state legislature uh, making laws or making those same types of policy decisions. A prosecutor's role is to enforce the laws on the book, to seek justice in each case, and to hold criminals accountable. Sartoris said in her statement that she will develop a policy to address racial charging data and the role of unconscious bias, as well as a number of other policies, including not pressing criminal charges against women seeking an abortion. She will run uncontested in the November general election unless a qualified candidate starts a write-in campaign. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And now to the Supreme Court, where Justice Sonia Sotomayor has said, quote, mistakes in high-profile cases can be corrected over time. That's ahead of a decision in which the court is expected to overturn Roe v. Wade. Institutions are made up by human beings. Because we are human, by necessity, we make mistakes. It is the nature of the human enterprise that people, as people, as judges, as politicians, as presidents, as whatever, that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have errors of judgment. The two women, Sotomayor told the annual meeting of a le liberal legal group that sh the court has made changes to the law over time. She didn't specifically name the court's anticipated decision on Roe v. Wade. Early in May, a leaked draft ruling indicated that the court is set to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 ruling that legalized abortion nationwide. The draft opinion set off a political firestorm, and pro-abortion supporters staged rallies outside the courthouse and at locations around the United States. Chief Justice John Roberts ordered an investigation into the source of the unprecedented disclosure. And in one state of Mexico, police are reportedly blocking migrants from making their way to the U.S. border. Why? The Center for Immigration Studies' Todd Benzman says Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been making some demands, and it seems to be working. Benzman says he spoke with a state official who has direct knowledge of the operations, and he's here today to tell us more about the governor's moves. Todd, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. Good to be here. Thank you. Texas Governor Greg Abbott yesterday confirmed your report that he threatened to invoke the agreement he made with the Mexican border state to essentially slow trade over that border unless the state deals with the flow of migrants coming. Could you tell us more about what's happening on the ground there in Mexico and how it came about? Yeah, well, this is a very interesting and innovative policy for a state governor to affect bilateral relations between the two countries. Uh, this goes back to April when the Biden administration was planning to lift Title 42, the instant expulsions, and they were expecting tremendous floods of people, primarily through Texas. So Abbott took it into his own hands. He shut down several of the bridges, uh, major bridges, until the Mexican governors came to the table and cut security deals. They promised that they would do security on their side. And so now when a caravan was coming up, 15,000, the biggest caravan ever, he invoked that with one of the governors and said, hey, put a stop to this. 
and apparently they did initiate operations, substantial operations on the other side that that disrupted a lot of the flow of migrants that, from that caravan. And there are reportedly now protests and other civil disobedience disturbances in Mexico from migrants who essentially had been given the go-ahead by Mexico's federal government but are now being stopped. The migrants are reportedly being deported, yet there's still a lot of U.S.-Mexico border outside those states. Do you think they'll find another way to cross over? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I do think that, that probably eventually most of them are going to get in to the country one way or another. Uh, there are just too many places and too many ways uh, to smuggle themselves in or to cross in in onesies and twosies. Uh, so unfortunately, I do think that, you know, most of them are going to, to end up inside the United States and will probably be paroled in. However, uh, it doesn't hurt to, uh, you know, create speed bumps and to not make it easy. And I think maybe there could be some long-term deterrence uh, about this if they know that the state governors all along the border are going to give them, are going to give them trouble. So, I mean, and I, I understand their frustration. They were within a hair of finally getting over the border, and then all of a sudden they're being put on buses and shipped back south to southern Mexico. Uh, so, Yeah, so in your view, what power do border states have in the U.S. of stemming the flow of immigration? Uh, not much. Uh, it's a federal—this is primarily a federal issue. Uh, the The— Texas governor is, uh, you know, initiating as many different kinds of innovations and policies that he can. The bridge one is probably the most uh, kinetically effective one on the ground. They have the power to shut trade down with Mexico. Uh, they only did it for three days before these governors came in. Uh, but I think that if the governor of Texas wanted to he could force the president of Mexico to the table like Trump did. Uh, Trump, remember, threatened progressive trade tariffs and the Mexicans folded on every policy initiative that Trump put out there. They cooperated on everything. Uh, and I think that the governor has that power if he wanted to exercise it and get full cooperation from the Mexicans. That's really what it's going to take. Todd Bensman from the Center for Immigration Studies, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And staying with Mexico, the Navy seized nearly 3,000 pounds of a substance believed to be cocaine from two boats in the Oaxaca state. The seizure took place days ago when the Navy spotted two suspicious boats by the Huatuco coast in Oaxaca. Noticing the Navy was following them, the crew flew to a nearby lake and moved the shipment to a vehicle. When a Navy helicopter intercepted the van, the alleged traffickers abandoned the vehicle. It was loaded with 36 packs of a substance believed to be cocaine. The case is now in hands of the prosecutor's office. During 2022, 14 tons of cocaine have been seized along Mexico's coasts. And in Massachusetts, police are investigating an incident that involved a car crashing into a Trump store. The car had an anti-Trump sticker on its bumper, but it's unclear right now whether the crash was intentional or an accident. The Easton Police Department says a Volkswagen Jetta crashed into the New England for Trump store in Easton, Massachusetts, Thursday afternoon. The store sells Trump-related merchandise. One employee was inside at the time, but was not injured. Police say the driver of the car was a 46-year-old man from Raynham, Massachusetts, he was transported to a hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. A photo taken by local photographer Mark Vasconellis shows that the car has an anti-Trump sticker on the bumper. The police department is investigating the case and didn't say whether the driver crashed into the store intentionally or not. And now to gas prices. President Biden today spoke about addressing climate change. This as Democrats push for more aggressive policies and Republicans say it's the wrong direction. NTD's Iris Tau has more. In the United States, I'm using every lever available to me to bring down prices for the American people. While again vowing to lower the soaring gas prices, President Biden on Friday turned his attention to climate change. 
climate security and energy security go hand in hand. Hosting a climate meeting with over 20 of the world's largest economies, Biden urged countries to reduce reliance on fossil fuels. He says transitioning away from them will lower energy costs and bolster energy security, citing Russia's invasion. Russia's brutal and unprovoked assault on its neighbor Ukraine has fueled a global energy crisis and to sharpen the need to achieve long-term reliable energy security and stability. Biden also announced new initiatives to curb global methane emissions. And when it comes to high gas prices, he says electric cars are the long-term solution. Over the long run, we can remove the pain of volatile gas prices and reduce transportation emissions by putting more zero-emission cars on the road. Democrats are urging Biden to go further, pushing for a sweeping climate bill in Congress, citing recent heat waves and what they call an urgent need. Our streets buckled, our bridges melted, and blackouts rolled across the region. Republicans, meanwhile, are blaming Biden for the high gas prices, saying at a press conference this week that Biden's climate plan wouldn't work. Your electric car costs about fifty-five dollars to $60,000 on average. Most Americans can't afford that. But then if you added one million more electric cars to the electric grid, there's not enough energy on the electric grid to actually power the electric cars you actually want to get in the United States. They're also calling for more oil production in the U.S., saying this is the solution to high gas prices and a volatile global energy market. And as the administration grapples with soaring oil prices, President Biden is expected to travel to Saudi Arabia next month. It comes, however, amid criticism that a visit could legitimize the regime's troubling human rights record. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And staying on Capitol Hill, staffers are now writing up the text for more restrictive gun laws. Members on both sides of the aisle have agreed to a framework, but some disagreements are emerging in the details. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are working on bills to create new federal restrictions on guns, including checking records for people under 21 and encouraging states to tighten up their own gun laws, among other measures. You know, we all made a commitment to each other that we were uh, supportive of the framework and that we were going to write that into law. 20 senators, 10 Republicans, and 10 Democrats have agreed to this framework. But there are some sticking points slowing down the process. Well, the so-called boyfriend loophole continues to be a, be a challenge, but uh, as you may recall, that was what delayed the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization for a number of years. Federal law already prevents convicted domestic violence spouses from getting guns, but it doesn't apply to other relationships. Democrats consider this a loophole and want to close it. But Republicans are cautious against making the language too broad, which could lead to a risk of people accusing former partners of violence and impacting their ability to get a gun. They are important issues, but it's the nature of Congress that you sit down and work out the language and the compromise. If there's a little give on both sides, we can get it done. Another sticking point is how to encourage states to enforce so-called red flag laws. The bill would give grants to states to encourage them to enforce their own red flag laws, to take guns away from people who are deemed by a court to be a danger. Uh, we want to make sure that due process is protected because we're talking about a fundamental constitutional right. The senators are still hammering out these final details, but time is short to reach a deal before the Senate leaves town for recess. I will put it on the floor as soon as possible, so I encourage my colleagues to keep working. Senators are aiming to take a final vote on this before they break for their 4th of July recess. And getting anything through the Senate takes hours of floor debate, sometimes taking days. So hammering out the details in these negotiation talks is crucial right now, and time is of the essence. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Coming up, residents in a Texas neighborhood have been complaining about the recent increase in crime. Now their homeowners association has done something about it, but some are calling the move discriminatory. And it's not only the low-income earners who are living paycheck to paycheck. High-income earners are struggling with higher prices too. Find out why in just a minute on NTD News.
NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers, cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. In a small subdivision outside of Dallas, Texas, residents have been blaming Section 8 housing recipients for the recent increase in crime. Now, their homeowners association has made a move that some are calling discriminatory. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. As seen in this video posted by Providence Village News, an American flag hangs in front of a home in what was once a peaceful neighborhood. A shootout can be heard in the middle of the night. Residents of Providence Village, Texas, which is just north of Dallas, have been complaining about an increase in crime as more Section 8 voucher recipients move into the subdivision. Earlier this month, the Providence Village HOA did something about the low-income residents who pay rent with Section 8 housing vouchers. This video was also posted by Providence Village News. A rent house may not be used for a Violators of Providence Village's new rental and leasing rules may be fined $300 a week. NBC5 DFW showed the stories of two Section 8 recipients who live in the neighborhood. One had this to say. I cannot think of any other way to, to sum, sum it up aside, besides discrimination. And a tenant advocate told NBC this. There's certainly a correlation um, and disproportionate effect on um, certain races and ethnicities that are going to be... Um, become homeless and kicked out of their homes because of this decision, and that's what becomes problematic under the law. A Providence Village homeowner said this in a letter to the editor of the Denton Record Chronicle. I worked hard to be a homeowner, and the crime uptick is correlated to the transient culture that has taken over in the last three years. One report suggests there may be some truth to that. According to a study done by Texas A&M University, after men received Section 8 housing vouchers, the number of men arrested for violent offenses increased threefold. The researchers said, we attribute this increase to the additional funds and leisure time available to voucher recipients that can be used to commit crimes. Both of these mechanisms have been shown to increase illegal activity. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, in 2018, 2.1 million people received Section 8 rental assistance. Jason Perry, NTD News. And now to the environment. Some environmental groups are suing the Biden administration for handing out drilling permits. NTD's Colin Fredrickson looks into their concerns amid rising gas prices. Environmental groups are suing the Biden administration for issuing over 3,500 oil and gas drilling permits in New Mexico and Wyoming. They say the drilling will release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and harm over 150 different species of animals, including Hawaiian songbirds and polar bears. They really just slow things, slow down the process. Denton Cinquagrana is the chief oil analyst at the Oil Price Information Service. Cinquagrana says these types of lawsuits are very common. Can be an effective tool as well. Uh, where you don't have drilling going on because things are tied up in courts uh, for months and years. The environmental groups say Biden is violating the Endangered Species Act as well as the National Environmental Policy Act. They also say these permits are given out without any meaningful engagement with the public. Oil and gas extraction and, and the drilling really requires tremendous amounts of water, it results in tremendous am um, amounts of contaminants that go up into the air, including cancer-causing contaminants. It has a very heavy footprint on the landscape. Maya Rossum is the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, an organization dedicated to protecting the environment. Rossum argues drill sites damage the environment and harm the health of people and animals living nearby. However, all of this is happening as gas prices have hit a nationwide average of $5 a gallon, and Biden is doing all sorts of things to get it down, such as handing out those drilling permits. But these permits are only one step toward actual drilling. Right after that, you need sub subsequent permits, dozens of subsequent permits. So you have your land access, but now you need permission to do exploratory drilling. We don't have that. 
right? Once you do exploratory drilling, you need permission to do, do your more permanent drilling. We don't have that. We don't have fracking permits. We don't have extraction permits. Even if you were to extract oil and gas from the ground, do you have a permit to transport it? That's a whole nother set of permits. Daniel Turner is the founder of Power the Future, an organization that seeks to educate Americans on energy. Turner says that the regulatory process, as well as an environment that's hostile to the oil and gas industry, is preventing more drilling. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And staying with inflation, many Americans are feeling the squeeze because of rising prices. But recent findings have shown even some high-income earners making $100,000 or more are living paycheck to paycheck. NTD's Phil Zoe has that story. William Goldman is happily married, living in the city of Henderson, Nevada, a short 20-minute drive from Las Vegas. His family is young but big, with seven children up to the age of 19. He and his wife have been working from home since the CCP virus pandemic hit. Him as a retirement expert at Gold Federal Advisor, and her as a graphic designer and cook, in addition to her full-time job as a stay-at-home mom. Together, they make a comfortable income of around $150,000 a year, sometimes more. We're paying one of the higher income tax brackets, and we're just being crushed. We're just being crushed, not just the taxes, we're just being crushed because of the inflation tax. Things are getting tough, Goldman says. So it's $150 a week, at least, to fill up uh, both cars. Even just going on a road trip, we think about three times before, can we really afford this? 36% of high-income earners who make $100,000 or more are living paycheck to paycheck. That's double the percentage from before the pandemic, according to a survey by Willis Towers Watson. There's a lot of people shopping, but they're not not a lot of stuff in their carts, not nearly as much as it used to be six months ago, for sure. As a retirement advisor, Goldman says inflation is also impacting his bottom line at work. People are pulling out money from investments, and we're talking about safe investments. People are just scared to put that money into a safer investment because of we see the markets tumbling. Not only that, Goldman says because of inflation, he himself is now saving less towards his own retirement. I would be putting away probably close to $1,000, if not more. Today, maybe half, if I'm lucky. Even so, Goldman and his family are staying positive. He says this presents a great learning opportunity for his children. They do their own work, and they babysit, and they do their own uh, financials, and I set them up as such. There are ups and downs in life. This is part of life. And what great, better great training is there than experiencing it firsthand and preparing for the future. For workers making less than $50,000 a year, a whopping 52% are living paycheck to paycheck, according to the same survey. Phil Zoe, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for a show, can you email us at NTD, eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Senator has plans to make California what he calls a trans-sanctuary state. One parent is vocally opposing it, the mother of a detransitioned daughter. And then the NBA, the Golden State Warriors are champions again, but how long will this dynasty last? NTD's Dave Martin takes a look at their core players going forward. That and more coming up. A mother of a teen who once suffered from gender dysphoria spoke out against making California a sanctuary state for both transgender youth and their gender-affirming parents. She says the move would be a mistake. NTD's Daniel Hall has more on what she said. Erin Friday, a self-declared Democrat and mother of a detransitioned daughter, told the California Assembly Judiciary Committee on June 8th that transgender indoctrination of a child is a social contagion. She directly addressed the author of the bill. Scott Weiner, a man without children, is pushing gender affirmative medicine laws for minors, while other countries are moving away from the affirmation model. Friday spoke in strong opposition to Senator Scott Weiner's Senate Bill 107. Weiner says his bill will provide refuge for trans youth, their parents, and those who advocate and provide gender-affirming care for minors. So what SB 107 will do 
uh, is it does three things. First of all, it makes clear that when uh, a family comes to California uh, and there is an issue in terms of custody or anything else uh, in their home state, uh, that California is not going to apply uh, the law of the other state. Some parents who have declined gender-affirming care have reportedly lost custody of their children. Gender-affirming care can include social transitioning, puberty blockers, and cross-sex hormones for children who identify as trans, often without parental consent. Custody is one of the hardest-fought aspects of a divorce, and California cannot just wipe away an out-of-state agreement addressing which parent controls the medical health of a child. In addition to custody, SB 107 would refuse to honor subpoenas from other states that seek medical or other records related to these situations. And thirdly, it would direct police to deprioritize these cases and not enforce out-of-state laws. Courts may order extradition only when required by the U.S. Constitution. Wiener criticized other states for creating laws banning gender-affirming care. It's no surprise uh, that we see the levels of uh, self-harm and, and suicide, frankly, among LGBTQ youth in this country when we have powerful politicians uh, and states uh, sending these messages. However, Friday disagreed. If trans medicine prevents suicide, why then, as trans medicine gets more prevalent, are more girls committing suicide? Another speaker, Greg Burt of the California Family Council, added that puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and gender reassignment surgery can cause harm to a person's reproductive system. He cited Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. And she uh, brings up some very concerning things about the gender-affirming care that's being promoted in this bill destroys the reproductive systems, especially of young women, um, and that is one of the reasons we are very concerned about this bill. In the end, the Judiciary Committee voted 7-1 to one to pass the bill, moving it further along in the legislative process. AB 107 heads to the Public Safety Committee for another hearing and vote. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The Golden State Warriors beat the Boston Celtics 103-90 last night to secure their fourth NBA title in eight years. Less than 24 hours later, Steph Curry and crew are expected to repeat as champions in 2023. Caesars Sportsbook has Golden State as 5-1 odds to do it again next year, followed by the Brooklyn Nets and Boston Celtics at 6-1. For the Warriors, next year could be their last realistic chance. Curry, who was just named Finals MVP, will turn 35 next season, an age where players typically start to decline. Meanwhile, his teammates Clay Thompson and Draymond Green are just two years behind him. The three of them made more than $110 million this season, and that'll continue to rise going forward. And while it was money well spent this year, Golden State will likely need to spend big to keep 20-somethings Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole, whose contracts run out after 2023. On the ice, Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Finals is Saturday night, with the Lightning trailing the Avalanche 1-0. Colorado got off to a hot start in Game 1, scoring three first-quarter goals before Tampa Bay roared back to send it to overtime. Andre Burakovsky's goal, less than 90 seconds into the first overtime, sent the crowd into hysterics. For the two-time defending champion Lightning, though, this marked the third time in these playoffs they lost Game 1. Meanwhile, for Colorado, they're still hoping to get back center Nazem Kadri, who's been out with a thumb injury. And finally, on a family note, Father's Day is just around the corner. For some people, a connection with their dad often involved some type of sporting activity. Whether it was watching, talking, or playing sports with their fathers, we asked people to share their fondest memories with us. Well, he was a, he was a good swimmer. He, he taught me how to breathe slowly, uh, stroke, uh, you know, take a slow stroke in the water. So I always admired that, and um, I always remember that. And he spent us, I think he picked that up. I'm not sure he picked it up in Coney Island. He was from Brooklyn. Or where he picked it up, I think it was something to do with the ladies. During Father's Day, me and Pops, if we usually try and see a Yankees game, um, if we can't find a Yankees game, we then try to go see a Mets game. So we try to do some sort of an activity sports-wise. If we can't see a sport, we get the old mitts out and throw around the ball. Probably the only positive memories I have with my dad are, are um, 
watching sports together and then really um, exploring the statistics, especially around baseball and um, um, being able to sort of link up the players we were watching to his players through the statistics and the sort of potential parallels there. Um, that was when I was really young, probably we were doing that from like four on, um, or at least until adolescence. On behalf of everyone here at NTD, we'd like to wish all the fathers out there a happy Father's Day. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, violent protests broke out across several cities in India after the country's prime minister announced a new military recruitment process. Protesters say the new plan will hurt their chances of getting permanent military jobs, which are highly sought after. And Britain has approved the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States over spying charges. His wife vows to fight to the end. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. In India, violent protests broke out across several cities over a new military recruitment process announced by the country's prime minister. The new scheme would hire soldiers on a shorter, fixed term, after which only a fraction of them will be retained. The goal is to cut the army's expenditure on salaries and pensions, which account for more than half of its budget, and free up funds to modernize the forces. But protesters say the new plan will reduce their chances of getting coveted permanent military jobs, which offer prestige, a regular income, and even a way out of poverty for many young people. Here are the details. At least one person has died as violent demonstrations spread across India in opposition to a new military recruitment process announced earlier this week. It comes as authorities imposed restrictions on gatherings in Gurugram, a satellite city of New Delhi that is home to the offices of several multinational firms. Demonstrators set fire to train coaches in the eastern state of Bihar on Friday as the protests raged on for a second day. Police fired shots in the air on Thursday to push back stone-throwing crowds in the northern state of Haryana. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government is planning an overhaul of the recruitment process for the almost 1.4 million strong armed forces, aiming to bring in more people on short, four-year contracts to lower the average age of personnel. The new system, called Agnipath, or Path of Fire in Hindi, will bring in men and women between the ages of 17 and a half and 21 for a four-year tenure at non-officer ranks, with only a quarter retained for longer periods. Soldiers have previously been recruited by the Army, Navy and Air Force separately and typically serve for up to 17 years for the lowest ranks. Potential recruits object, saying they should be allowed to serve longer than four years. Opposition parties and some members of Modi's ruling Bharatiya Janata Party have criticised the plan, saying the system will lead to more unemployment in a country already grappling with joblessness. On Friday, the government announced a one-time extension to the maximum entry age into the scheme, raising it to 23 as a result of recruitment freezes over the past two years due to the global health crisis. The armed forces aim to recruit about 46,000 people under the new system this year and will keep 25% of them on at the end of their four-year terms. And in Europe, the European Union's executive recommended that Ukraine become a candidate for membership. If approved, it marks a milestone for the former Soviet Republic and is spurred by the new geopolitical momentum since Russia invaded Ukraine. However, Kyiv would likely take years to become a member of the 27-nation EU, if at all. NTD's Earl Rhodes tells us more. Good afternoon. In a sign of a major political shift brought about by Russia's invasion, the EU Commission on Friday supported giving formal membership candidate status to Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine should be welcomed as a candidate country. This is on the understanding that good work has been done, has been done but important work also remains to be done. The entire process is merits-based. And we all know that 
Ukrainians are ready to die for the European perspective. We want them to live with us the European dream. If approved, it will be a major moral boost for Kiev and further Western snob for Russian President Vladimir Putin after his invasion of Ukraine. In recent years, France and Germany have been among EU countries opposing bringing in new members. But during their first visit to Kiev on Thursday, the French and German leaders, along with their Italian and Romanian counterparts, vowed to back membership. We have jointly expressed our desire to confirm through actions beyond words that Ukraine belongs to the European family. All four of us support the status of Ukraine's immediate candidacy for accession to the European Union. Since Ukraine won independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, pro-Russian and pro-EU politicians have vied for control. Ukraine has sought EU candidate status since 2014, when protests in Kiev toppled a pro-Russian president. The country already has a free trade pact with the EU. It applied to join just days after Russia's invasion. The path to actual membership of the 27-nation bloc for Ukraine may, however, take years. It requires reforms to conform with democratic and rule-of-law standards and to tackle corruption. According to watchdog Transparency International, Ukraine is perceived as one of the world's most corrupt countries, ranked 122nd out of 180 states. The Kremlin said on Friday that it was closely following Ukraine's efforts to become a member. EU leaders will discuss the Commission's candidate proposal for Ukraine during a summit in Brussels next week. They all need to agree for the status to be formally granted. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. British Home Secretary Priti Patel today signs an order to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States. Assange's wife says extradition will drive him to suicide and he could face 175 years in prison. She vows to fight using every possible legal avenue. NTD's Eddie Aitken has more. Home Secretary Priti Patel has on Friday signed an order to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. A Home Office spokesperson said under the Extradition Act 2003, the Secretary of State must sign an extradition order if there is no grounds to prohibit the order being made. The spokesperson said both the Magistrates Court and the High Court have not found that it would be oppressive, unjust or an abuse of process to extradite Assange, and he has 14 days' time to launch an appeal. Stella Assange, wife of Julian Assange, said they would appeal and include evidence that the CIA had previously allegedly tried to kill her husband. We're not at the end of the road here. We're going to fight this. We're going to use every appeal avenue. The Australian-born WikiLeaks founder has been involved in a legal fight in Britain for more than a decade, and it could now go on for many more months. Originally, a British judge ruled he could not be deported, citing his mental health. But this was overturned on an appeal after the U.S. gave a package of assurances, including a pledge he would be transferred to Australia to serve any sentence. Australia's new government said it would continue to tell London and Washington that the case had dragged on for too long and should be brought to a close. Our expectations as a family um, are that the Australian government will do whatever it takes to get him home. Whatever it takes, this is a political case. It has to be resolved at the highest levels. The legal saga began at the end of 2010 when Sweden sought Assange's extradition from Britain over allegations of sex crimes. When he lost that case in 2012, he fled to the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he spent seven years. He was finally dragged out in April 2019. He was jailed for breaching British bail conditions, although the Swedish case against him had been dropped. He has been fighting extradition to the U.S. since June 2019 and remains in jail. During his time in Ecuadorian embassy, he fathered two children with his now wife, who he married in Belmarsh High Security Prison in London in March. The conditions he will be under will be so oppressive. The case he is facing is so oppressive. He has no public interest defense. He cannot mount a defense on the basis of the significance of the uh, documents that he published, that it will drive him to take his own life. WikiLeaks called it a dark day for press freedom and British democracy.
Assange is wanted by US authorities on 18 counts, including a spying charge relating to WikiLeaks' release of vast droves of confidential US military records and diplomatic cables from which Washington said had put lives in danger. But his supporters say he is an anti-establishment hero who has been victimized because he exposed US wrongdoing in conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that his prosecution is a politically motivated assault on journalism and free speech. Eddie Aitken, NDD News. Coming up, a daughter's memoir of her beloved father. She tells the story of the man she admires so much and the many moments that have made her who she is today. Stay tuned for more when we return. As Father's Day approaches, many of us will be reflecting on our own dads and the crucial role they play in our lives. A singer, actor and former ICU nurse tells the story of her own father's life and his impact on hers in her latest book, When Your Hand is in the Lion's Mouth, The Life and Wisdom of a Man Named Green. Nita Whitaker's story tells of the critical role one man can play in teaching others valuable lessons in love and respect and living a good life despite the odds. Nita, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. Happy to be here. Now, your father has an extraordinary story. Could you tell us a little about his life and how it's influenced you? Well, let's start with the fact that he's 96 years old, which means he's seen a lot of life and a lot of the world. He has been one of those fathers, and I always say I had the blessing of a great dad. He lived by example of kindness, love, and faith, and just tenacity. If there was a way to do something, he found a way to do it. And just the little life lessons that he planted along the way really helped create who I am today, gave me a great foundation because I had that profound fatherly love. Could you share a specific example about how his life taught you those foundational values? Well, there was one uh, incident where my dad does a shave every morning as part of his morning ritual. And I was, as a little girl, we would sit and I'd chat while he shaved. And sometimes he let me take the razor and go across. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. One of those days, I, when I was in college, I would always make time on the weekends to sit and chat with dad while he was shaving. And he just looked up at me one day and he said, Nita, I'm going to need you to go all the way. And what that said to me was, it was so profound, it shifted everything. Like, no matter what is in front of me, I'm not going to stop until the task is completed. I'm not going to do anything except if it's 150%. That go all the way means you go, you don't stop. You don't take no for an answer. And it... For me, and I think if we could give this to everybody, because life is going to give you things that are hard, they're going to give you obstacles and things that are challenging in your life. But if you can remember to keep rising, because it's in the rising that you win, you may not make it to the finish line, but you'll be a little bit closer if you keep going. So go all the way is one of those that, and my dad did that. He did not stop. You know, he was a share, he was a sharecropper's son. He picked cotton many years of his life, but he ended up being one of the top salesmen in insurance for 25 or 30 years. He found a way to have a good life. He wanted his part of the American dream. That sounds really inspiring. Now, you say that faith played a strong role in both yours and your father's lives. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. When my dad was growing up, um, his family in, in general, that community only went to church one Sunday out of a month. That was what everybody did. It was one Sunday. But like, and I grew up going to church every Sunday. But my father has had this steady, unwavering, incredible, connected faith that I have witnessed. It's not something he talks, it's something he lives. And when you see that, I mean, my dad has, since I was a little girl, he prays every night and he still does to this day. And it's his personal time. He didn't force faith on us, but he lived in a way of a faithful man. And he showed us that. So that spilled onto our family. And he took us to church with him, he and mother, and, and we, we were part of Bible study and a part of the choir and all those things that implant that moral compass in their children. So they did that. And he is still a, a man of faith. Um, and that has really, 
I, I am in awe of him. I'm in awe of the relationship that he has with God. And it's something that is so personal for him, but it is so lived for us. And we, we got to see his example. He modeled that for us. So children imitate behavior, have imitatable behavior. My father showed us that, and he continues to live and be that. Nita Whitaker, author of When Your Hand is in the Lion's Mouth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. Thanks for shining a light on me, my dad, and our book. Thank you. Nita's book, When Your Hand is in the Lion's Mouth, comes out this Sunday, Father's Day. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.